Are you one of those people who loves your kitchen, but come the end of the day and you just go, I just don't have time to cook, or I'm just not that good a cook? Because a lot of people have fancy kitchens and they never use them. But here's the truth. You can create food that's easy to do, better to eat, tastes better, is cheaper, fresher, delicious than anything you can get in a restaurant or certainly better than the takeout that you end up eating instead. I'm about to talk to Ellie Krieger, award-winning cookbook author, about her brand new hole-in-one, how to cook a meal in one pot, one skillet, one pan. I'm Sarah Heiner. This is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. And hey, don't forget to rate and review this podcast when you're done so even more people will hear about it. And listen till the end because I have a very special offer for you. I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert-sourced, expert-vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. And I'm thrilled to be talking today to New York Times best-selling James Beard Foundation and IACP award-winning author of five cookbooks and registered dietitian Ellie Krieger. Ellie's been at the forefront of health and nutrition education for the whole family, including being a powerful force in Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign. She's a firm believer that the words healthy and delicious can actually be used together when making food and meal selections. And with each of her cookbooks, Ellie works to take the stress out of cooking, making it easy for people to find joy, not just in the eating, but in the cooking as well. Her latest book, Whole in One, Complete Healthy Meals in a Single Pot, Sheet Pan, or Skillet, is her whole philosophy rolled into one unit. It's easy to make meals filled with unique tastes and textures that allows food to be good fuel and fabulous. I've read the book, it is fabulous. When she's not writing new books, Ellie's the host and executive producer of the public television cooking series, Ellie's Real Good Food, and well-known as the host of Food Network's hit show, Healthy Appetite. You can buy Whole in One at Amazon and wherever fine books are sold, and you can learn more about Ellie and her work at elliekrieger.com. Ellie, thank you so much, and I just I could run on and on and on on your biography, so thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to talk to you. Now, and I, I tripped over myself a little bit. You have five award-winning cookbooks, but you've written a lot more cookbooks than that, haven't you? This so I just... actually have seven cookbooks all together. This is my seventh. Yeah. Whole in One is my seventh, yes. Okay, I just wanted to be so sure that we're it, accurate. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty uh, intense process, and it doesn't really get easier, <laughs> to be honest, but, um, but I really, the results, really pay off for me in terms of being able to share my food in this wonderful platform. That's so great. Well, and I think one of the important things about cooking a meal all in one pot, pan, or skillet, um, to me, what I want to actually focus on today, because I think there are a lot of people out there that are nervous cooks and apprehensive cooks, and I wanted to kind of unpeel all those people that are afraid they have their big fancy kitchens they buy their new houses they have they insist on having their stainless steel appliances and then they don't use them and i want to get those people using their kitchens and get them over the hump of fear of cooking and that you know the whole hole in one cookbook helps them get through that because it makes it easier there's less cleanup etc so that's my goal today is to help all those nervous cooks and apprehensive cooks or somewhat lazy cooks to get to use all the great stuff in their kitchen. Sound good? Yeah, that sounds so great because that is actually my life goal. <laughs> my, the goal of my entire, you know, really everything that I do is about getting people to cook more at home and understanding perhaps some of the barriers of why people aren't doing that more and breaking them down and turning that into like, okay, here, let's take a collective deep breath. It doesn't have to be stressful. 
and how can we make this more pleasurable, easier, and with a big payoff yeah. in terms of flavor and nutrition and and the economy of it too, because it costs less and it and it tastes better. So <laughs> much less. Home. Totally. So I want to talk about the fears in one second, but I just had a theory that occurred to me this morning. Do you think that part of the demise or the problem with people being fearful of cooking is that they don't have home ec class anymore? Like I had home so ec class. I think, yeah, well, what you're getting at is sort of the sense that we're not really taught the basics from a young age, whether it's through a home ec class or by a parent or um, whoever's cooking at home, if they are even. And so we're not taught those basics. And I do think that basic like kind of food literacy um, is wanting. And I think that's part of it. But I think part of it, in a way, is the sense that this has that a meal, in order to be satisfying and delicious and healthy, has to somehow be this big production. Um, I think that's part of it too, that we have to, that it has to be perfect. And in a way, cooking shows in some way has like fed into that, so to speak, because, you know, everyone's a critic sort of thing. Um, but I think that it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that way. And it's just really a myth, a sort of cultural myth that we have that it has to be a big to-do. I mean, some of the most simple food is actually the most delicious and nutritious. Well, it's so true, and it's so funny because, I mean, I, I literally am talking to myself in this. I'm not the world's most confident cook, and, you know, after 30-plus years of marriage, I've gotten more confident with my cooking, but they used to mock me because when we'd have friends over, I'd literally tape a piece of paper to the kitchen counter with my timing for everything, and then as soon as we served dinner, I'd immediately start criticizing myself of this was overcooked, this should have had a little more salt, this is a little bit mushy, and that my family would look at me and go, shut up, <laughs> like, just relax, it's delicious, and thank you for cooking. And we right. do, I think we make ourselves crazy. Yes, and I think the same goes for me at home, that I you know, might be looking at like, oh, this is how, I, I definitely look at my own food with a critical eye because I'm always learning. And I think the sense of always learning is a good thing. Like you never are, okay, I'm a fabulous chef now. <laughs> You know, whether you're a home, I'm, I'm a perfect home cook now, I do everything right. The best cooks and the best chefs that I know never think like that. That it's all about learning and experimenting and saying, oh, maybe this needs less time. Or, wow, sometimes the squash is sweet and sometimes it needs to have some honey on it. Or having that sense of always learning um, shouldn't be something that's scary because the stakes are really kind of low. If you're cooking nice food, and you're making it at home, it really, it's gonna be, I, it's funny because one of my things I always say to myself is how bad could it be <laughs> when yeah. I'm making something and I feel a little bit afraid. Right, it's I mean. It's really never, it's never gonna be bad. Right, unless you really Very collapse rarely. the souffle. None of it, you can't really fail at it. I, I was thinking this morning, years ago, I took a, we were taking ski lessons and the ski instructor said, I came down, you know, skiing, it's about getting down the hill, but skiers are all obsessed with their form and it has to look perfect. They have to look cool down, going down the ski slope. And I went down and I'm the worst skier in my family because my kids grew up skiing from very young. My husband grew up skiing and I kind of was a teenager learner. And the instructor looked at me when I got down the hill and was critical of myself. He goes, did you get down? And I said, yes. And he said, did you have fun? And I said, yes. And he said, you didn't fall. And I said, no. And he goes, well, then you skied great. 
and in some ways it's the same with cooking like did you did you do it did you enjoy it does it taste you know good and is it a good healthy balanced thing then you did great yes and you might think oh how could i how might i change this next time and then that becomes edgy then you know then you just learn something and then the next time you can build on that and that's how you become a really competent cook um so and the other thing is as someone who writes recipes i take that responsibility very seriously and i think we are in a world today where we can just sort of look up recipes online and come across all kinds of recipes and we don't necessarily know the source. Maybe it's a blog and maybe they do a great job, but maybe they don't. I think there's a lot of recipes out there online that you might be Googling that are not going to be very well tested and that sometimes the cook winds up blaming themselves when it's actually the recipe because that actually happened to my daughter. Oh, interesting. And it, to me, that's a cr- right. that's like... I take it so seriously when I develop a recipe and I make sure that it works Yeah. and I make sure the ingredients are accessible and I make sure I write it in a way that there's no vagaries. Right. Um, and, and I take it seriously because I do realize that it's a big responsibility. Someone is going into their kitchen and taking their time and using ingredients that, you know, they paid for and they're, and I, I don't believe in wasting food. So I take that responsibility very seriously. And so I think, the whole notion of knowing that your recipes come from a trusted source is not, shouldn't be underrated. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, we obviously, as an information provider, and you know how meticulous bottom line is about our fact-checking and our research. And this is another example of places where user-generated content might sound good, but you have to really watch out. Interesting point. Well done. All right, let's talk about the excuses that people make, because I think that there are, I'll call it, to my mind, there are two primary excuses that people use. I don't have time, and I'm afraid I don't really know how to cook. So can we unpeel those a little bit? Sure. Okay. Um, let's start so with... If I, you can follow any instructions and you have a good recipe, you can do, you can, you can actually cook. It's literally just paying attention to it, just like you could learn anything. And so it's about caring about it, it's about finding recipes that are meant for people that are of various skill levels or maybe just starting out. <clears throat> and because um, there are a lot of cookbooks out there that are more really aspirational, right? So, but if you, if it, a recipe is geared for a regular home cook, there's no reason that anyone can't do it, just paying attention to it and following the instructions. And I think what I see a lot in the kitchen is people get distracted. Like they have their phone, they're sort of half there. And I think one of the beautiful things about cooking is the being there in the process. And even if it's just 20 minutes of putting your phone down, paying attention to what you're doing, and it becomes an almost zen kind of moment of this process, and even better to kind of share that with a family member, and then it becomes a half the work and an activity that you do together. And that brings people closer too. Yeah, so, um, so even making like a holiday meal to do it with other people. Um, but so in terms of the, I can't do it part of it, you know, it, it's, if you can follow instructions, you can do it. And I think it's really a, very much about just fo- taking a minute to focus on what you're doing and really give it your attention. Do you think they really are just using that as an excuse because they don't want to make the effort and that it's easier to say, I can't do it. Like, you know, there are all those people that say, I can't boil water. But in fact, it really does become an intention thing. 
Yeah, it's a decision. It's a decision that you're making. Yeah. Um, and there, maybe that's okay for some people, and maybe you can just say that. <laughs> are there, but, um, are there but, s- uh, but the decision has ramifications, and and really, um, it, you may be feeding your own narrative there that isn't true. Are there um, certain techniques that strike more fear than others? Like I remember the pressure when I was very young. My, I guess my mom taught me to sear meat. I, I would have to start the pot, pot roast at home or the stew at home. And my grandmother had taught my mother, and then my mother taught me, and that it was a very particular thing. So are there you know, certain techniques that are far easier to do, like boil water, versus specific techniques that are more you know, intimidating, but if you, again, take the moment that you can master them? Well, it's funny. Well, two things come to mind. One is I think people are unduly and unre- unrational- irrationally afraid of cooking fish. Um, I think it's one of the easiest things in the entire world to cook, and it's so fast to cook. But for some reason, people like have a fear that they're not going to cook it enough, or they're going to overcook it, or they, they feel afraid of cooking fish. So I, I wonder about that sometimes, um, of how to combat that. And again, my solution to everything is just, I'm going to give you a great recipe that's really easy, <laughs> that's essentially foolproof. Um, um, that's kind of how I tackle it for people. Yeah. How, uh, but, how the, poor... but the other element of it is that I think sometimes we build it up in our own mind. I know when my mom taught me how to make matzo balls, for example. That's a tough one, too. It... Sorry? That's a tough one, too, to yeah, get just the right yeah, texture. It, but it's not. Yeah. And that's the funny thing about it. She made it, the process, so precious that now you have to add the seltzer into the batter one, you know, millimeter at a time right. or whatever. But it didn't have to, when I really, as a professional, sat down and looked at the recipe that my grandmother gave, passed down, it really wasn't that complicated at all. No, but you, you just said something. You have to add the seltzer one millimeter at a time. I have never heard of putting using seltzer for matzo balls, though. Oh, yeah, that's Is... what my family does. Wow. Kind of keeps them does that help it lighter? I guess so. I... I I've never compared it to just regular water, which I probably should sometime. Yeah. But, um, but that's theoretically what it is. There's a secret really not hard. I mean, there's yeah. certain like little tricks, like making sure the batter's cold. And so once you know those little tricks, and again, in a well-written recipe, they're all going to be in there. And some, no, it's not really that hard. <laughs> and some of that is it's patience. Some of that's patience also. You know, you want to, you don't feel like waiting for the batter to get cool enough in the fridge or you don't wait for something to get at room temperature so that it sears better and right. you know in our busy world that you know is again is it just preparing scheduling the time making sure you take the meat out of the refrigerator a little while before you're st- you're ready to cook etc and you know slowing down our our time clocks yeah i mean a lot of it is that i think a lot of it is re- making sure you read the whole recipe before you start cooking <laughs> yes because what happens is sometimes you get caught oh no this had to go for this had to be chilled for two hours and you're trying to make a weeknight dinner clearly that's not going to work so you might be caught in the middle of the recipe had you not read it ahead of time so definitely read the whole recipe so know what you're getting into. And then really make sure you have all the ingredients, because that's another thing. I think the sense of preparation. I think many people are like, all right, I'm going to start cooking. And then they, at 5 o'clock in the evening, they first start to really think about, okay, I don't have the ingredients. 
I didn't, I'll just start cooking this because I have one of the ingredients. <laughs> then they realize they go and have some other key ingredients or there's an overnight wait time or something like that. Um, I think sometimes that kind of thing happens. So reading the recipe all the way through. And you do have to prepare a little bit, plan ahead. So for me, um, most Sundays, I think, okay, what are the, th- I'm going to make three dinners this week. Uh, one's going to be like a make-ahead sort of thing I can just have in the fridge, like a chili or a soup or a stew, something that I'm going to make a double batch so that if I'm running around, I know there's some food in there or if people are coming and going in my home. Right. Um, the other one might be a 30-minute meal that I know I can just make really quickly um, and that I have the ingredients for. It. And then the, the third one, you know, might be a one-pan meal. So whatever it may be, I think of three things, and the rest of them, then I usually will have enough for, like, leftovers and then one sort of, like, pizza night. And there's your whole week. But you have to think about it in advance so that you get the ingredients, and you make sure you have everything that you need for those three dinners. Yeah. I mean, so that's my ch- my um, sort of call to action. Planning strategy. Look, get three recipes a week that you're going to make. So it doesn't have to feel so overwhelming like you have to cook seven nights a week. Yeah, so true. And I, I want to talk in a little bit about a well-stocked kitchen and how ingredients you should have on hand. But going back to fear, how important is the equipment that you have having good pots and pans having good knives i know we i've always had good knives and when i go to friends house and they have the cheapest knives and it makes just slicing and dicing a misery and if you have cheap pots that they don't they don't sear well or they don't things don't cook quite right and then then it just feeds into the fear because then you accidentally burn something and then you know then you say oh i can't do this and i'm fearful versus if you had the right tools and i know in in hole in one you talk about six um, pots that every that you need to have, just the six basic pots that people should have. Yeah, so that's one of the things that, so first of all, absolutely think of your kitchen as a workspace where you want to have elbow room and you want to have enough space and you want to have good tools. Just like if you had a wood shop, you wouldn't have a dull swords, uh, not swords, uh, saws and things. You wouldn't have dull. You would never have dull swords, right? (laughs) No swords. I don't know what what, what shop I'm thinking of. (laughs) Metal shop, metal shop. (laughs) But but in any event, it's your your workspace. So I think clear the counters, get the, you know, I don't know, all the scented candles off the counter, whatever. Um, Clear the counters so you have a nice clear space to work. Get a nice big cutting board so you have a big surface and you have some elbow room. Make sure you have sharp knives. They don't have to be super expensive. Sharp knives are really important. Absolutely. It's so much more efficient. Um, and then in terms of the pots and pans, one of the things about hole-in-one that I wanted to really bring to life, which um, I'm so excited about, is that I think so people love one-pot cooking. It's very popular. There's a lot of books out there that are one-pot cooking. A lot of them require an appliance that you suddenly have to go out and buy and it's going to take up your counter space. And But my whole thing is, hey, you can make one-pot pan, one-pot dishes with regular, versatile pots and pans. So that is what this book, it uses the pots and pans that you probably already have. And not only does every recipe, does each recipe just take one vessel, but I decided that for the entire book for 125 recipes, I would use just six different pots and pans. 
So it's actually sort of what I consider the essential. So six different pots and pans. There are two pots, one large kind of stock pot or soup pot that has a wide bottom, so you can do some searing and then simmering. Um, one uh, five-quart sort of more medium-sized pot, which you can make like puddings in because there's nice desserts in the book too, um, but or, more, or green dishes, things like that. Um, then a couple of skillets, different size skillets, uh, and then a sheet pan with a rack. And I, I'm not sure if I had mentioned this to you earlier, but um, actually Circulon decided to make a hole-in-one essentials uh, kit inspired by the book. Oh, that's great. So um, there's actually a kit of pots and pans that, that are available. But the big point is, for maybe you want to upgrade or maybe you're just starting out in the kitchen, I thought, I think it's a really fun kind of thing to have, these basics with the book. But, um, but really, you can use probably the pasta pans that you already have to make any recipe in the book and to do a whole host of one-pot meals in general. You don't need something that's an expensive appliance. No, but you do, you do need like a good solid bottom, not one of those rigid. Yeah, like I have a pasta be, pot that's a rigid bottom. You want it to be good quality so that you have even heating temperature. You want it to be oven safe so that you can bring your skillet from the stovetop into the oven. You can bring your pot from the stovetop into the oven for a braise or something. Um, so that was important to me. Um, and and then in some in certain instances, having a nice nonstick surface that is um, that's uh, environmentally conscientious. Yeah, like the ceramic ones, not the Teflon ones, because the Teflon ones are toxic. Just no PFOA. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And you like a cast iron. You you included in your list a cast iron skillet, which I know everybody loves. How do you? It's so heavy. It's so. Yeah. Well, I the cast iron skillet that is in the book is just ten, a small one, it's yeah. a ten inch skillet. So for the bigger skillets, I I don't use cast yeah. iron. Yeah, because they're way too heavy for me. So I, the biggest one I have at home is like a twelve inch. But is the it? one in in the book that I I love to serve out of, so I make like crisps and and I do a couple of fun skillet cookies um, in and then a uh, frittata. Well, the, actually, for a frittata, I use a nonstick skillet. So, um, but the cast iron is relatively small, so it's not heavy at that yeah. size. Well, the nice thing about cast iron, besides, is they're actually relatively inexpensive. Yeah, the, the classic exactly. cast iron. You don't iron. need super expensive equipment. It yeah. doesn't have to be super expensive. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about time. So. What's a reasonable amount of time that people should expect to spend on cooking dinner? Again, I think they, they use the excuse, I don't have time, especially during the week. You get home, you've been at work, or you're rushing between one kid's activities and another kid's activities. So how much, how much should they allot? Because I think in their heads, it gets very big and unachievable. So I know that you can have dinner in less than 30 minutes. You can have dinner on the table. So I would say, but I would think that's basically a minimum in terms of like the prep and stuff. Um, and in Hole in One, there are lots of recipes that literally just take less than 30 minutes. So um, gosh, for example, this one shrimp sheet pan dish that's, um, it's shrimp and corn and tomatoes and zucchini and you just basically toss it all in the sheet pan with um, 
some smoked paprika and I have some chorizo in there that's optional. And the whole thing cooks in basically 20 minutes. And it, it, there's hardly any chopping, so that's easy to do in the time that the oven's preheating. So that's one example of a half of 30 minute dinner. But I think with one hour, then your horizons really expand. And then you can roast Brussels sprouts and do things that don't take effort. A lot of times that amount of that one hour period, only a small fraction of it is actually prep time. But once you get it in the oven, it might take 30 minutes from there, and then you have 30 minutes to help your child with their homework, to clean up a little bit, you know, yeah. from... And even the day, um, because in hole in one, there's only one pan to clean at the end. <laughs> well, and even um, on the that, on the cookie sheets or roasting vegetables, parchment paper is my best friend. You know, I use that. I don't even have to scrub the cookie pan after that. Yeah, you know what's funny is that I I didn't use parchment for these recipes only in a few instances um, because I liked the browning better. Yeah. On the on just the plain pan. Well, I that's true. I like the caramelization right. that happened, yeah. and I never had trouble cleaning any pan. So um, also, you can get kind of a nonstick um, cookie sheet too. Uh, I'm just a, pan. I'm just as lazy as I can be when I'm when I'm cooking and cleaning and that's up fine. the dishes. And the thing is, you know, there's going to be different strokes for different folks, yes. and that's the beauty of it too. And that's what I love about cooking at home right. is that you can make it how you want it. Well, also, <laughs> again, if people are going, oh God, you know, now I've got you know, clean up or I hate scrubbing the pan. Like my new best friend has become roast chickens from the store. Roast chicken is the easiest thing to make, but the cleanup is just, I can't stand it. So my, yeah. new, my new best friend is I buy roast chickens. Um, and yeah, then they're silver. I love silver, to have silver. a rotisserie chicken too. And actually I have one recipe in hole in one that is uses the meat from the rotisserie chicken, which is actually perfect for um, the Thanksgiving leftovers. Cause you could do this with turkey too, but it's a, um, chicken tinga tacos and it's like um this wonderful tomatoey kind of tangy tomatoey sauce and then you just simmer that with the already cooked kind of rotisserie chicken meat or turkey cooked turkey and then you um, pile it on tacos with you know some cilantro and greens and a little lime delicious sounds perfect i'm in for next friday or whenever thanksgiving (laughs) is Um, exactly and we talked before about a well-stocked kitchen and how e- how much easier that makes it. So, are there what what are we, what's in your well-stocked kitchen, and what should be in my well-stocked kitchen? In terms of food ingredients. In terms of ingredients, right? Because you know, it, again, yeah. it doesn't any anything doesn't take long if you have all the ingredients there and you know that you have them there. But when right. you don't the have it, that I always right. have. So I mean, going through in terms of canned foods, so always canned tomatoes. Um, of different kinds, always canned beans. I, you should see the variety of canned beans I have. Um, I always have, um, so always also have like boxed broth, for, uh, mm-hmm. chicken broth and yep. vegetable broth and so on. And then um, in the dry ingredients, I always have a variety of shapes of pasta. I like whole grain pastas. Um, and these things last for t- two years. I mean, so if you stock up and just, it's not like it's going to go bad. You can, these are things you can really stock up on. Um, I always have tuna, different tu- canned tuna, canned salmon. These are all ingredients that are healthful and also handy. 
Um, so also other grains like quinoa and farro and brown rice. And how about a lot of times I'll I'll keep uh, whole grains a lot of times in the refrigerator because they last longer. And how about um, assorted I'll call it condiments Worcestershire vinegars. You do some really interesting thing with balsamic vinegar. Um, mustards, you you know, a variety of those things that you can yeah, throw in I for mean, flavors. I have, you could probably survive, uh, you know, if, if anyone really needs to eat for a week and feed the, the town, they could probably come to my place. Yes. Um, because I do like to stock up. So, I mean, yeah, all different kinds of vinegars, white wine, Rice vinegar, balsamic vinegar, red wine vinegar, those are, and I like sherry vinegar a lot too. Different mustards. As a very basic, if you just have Dijon, you're fine. But I like to have like sometimes a grainy mustard on hand also. Um, different, I mean, a good olive oil for cooking, uh, a good olive oil for finishing, like an extra virgin olive oil. Um, also, the freezer. I think you can't really underestimate the power of the freezer. So having, I actually love frozen rice. That was one of the things I discovered in making this book, um, is that I was thinking, oh, anything served with rice or over rice, I can't do in the book because it needs another pan. But then I discovered frozen rice, and I was, I said, let me try it and see what I think. And I was really blown away by it because you just buy it in the grocery store. It's already cooked. There's one ingredient, and it's, I, I use brown rice, so it's brown rice mm-hmm. or other grains. They sell frozen also. You just take a cup of it or however much you want, and you put it in a microwave-safe dish and microwave it, and it comes out as fluffy and as fresh-tasting as if you just cooked it, and you saved yourself so much time, and you saved yourself a pot. So I, I, that's, I'm a new fan of frozen grains. Yeah, although I have to say with rice, my husband mocked me mercilessly because I bought a rice cooker for like $15 at Walmart a couple years ago. And because I could, you know, rice, uh, somehow the timing always got off or whatever. And I love the fact that I can set it and forget it. It doesn't boil all over my stove. And it takes, you know, as you were saying before, you turn it on, you push go, and you walk away. You literally don't have to think about it whatsoever. Yes, I do have to clean that pot separately, but it's really easy. I gotta oh, say. that's cool. Yeah, yeah sure. I mean, like like I said, there's so many ways to do it. But yeah. I just discovered frozen rice and really yeah. think it's a great resource. Oh, love um, it. Yeah. And for when I take lunches to work, I love my frozen rice because then you just take it. You don't have to, you know, if I haven't cooked it at all, it's great. Oh, yeah. And I also keep all kinds of frozen, I keep frozen shrimp. I keep frozen vegetables like peas and um, spinach, cooked spinach, and frozen vegetables with and fruit that don't have any sweetener or any seasonings added to them are just as nutritious as cooked fresh so you don't have to feel bad about using them yeah um will they roast up if i take frozen vegetables will they roast up nicely or do they get soggy um i wouldn't use those for roasting really because yeah um i would use those for more like stews and um and like frittatas and things like that. Yeah. I mean, it depends what it is. Gotcha. But, uh, yeah, those I don't would not be optimal for roasting. And how about dry herbs versus fresh? Can I, can I just well, use dry herbs? Well, there are two different uses, really. Yeah. Um, sometimes you really need, sometimes 
I think of herbs as an actual ingredient, like almost uh, like a like a like a lettuce almost. And I'll put lots of cilantro or lots of parsley in something, um, similar to the way parsley is used in tabbouleh traditionally. It's really a parsley salad with some grain in it, some um, some bulgur in it, and ve- other vegetables. But you can really use fresh herbs almost the way you would use uh, another kind of green green vegetable. Mm. Um, so in that case, you wouldn't substitute dry. But sometimes, if you're making a sauce, if you're making a stew, there you can use them interchangeably, but the general ratio, rule of thumb, is one tablespoon of fresh parsley or thyme or whatever equals one teaspoon of dried. Gotcha. So it's actually more concentrated when it's dry. I find that the herbs is the place where my well-stocked kitchen fails because I can have a bunch of dry ingredients and I can have all the stuff in my freezer or whatever, but the fresh herbs, if you don't use them fast, so that's where I have to know I have to have done my pre-planning. Um, except cilantro. We always have cilantro in the house. Um, right. So, interesting. All right, let's talk. So, in your book, you have kind of a, an equation, a formula for the one-pan meals, that it's like a protein plus a produce plus a whole grain. And then you put, put each of those together, and those equal a meal, which is pretty basic. Right. I mean, and the thing is, it's not always, like, on the plate in that sort of divided sort of right. way. Um, that I'm doing this in really in really flavor forward world flavor kind of ways. I like to say that my food is sort of Mediterranean style from a health profile um, and Mediterranean style in general, but with world flavors. Because I grew up in New York City and I grew up tasting flavors from all different communities, and I travel all over the world, and I just love to bring those flavors in an accessible way. Um, into my work, and, and and I say I really stress accessible because I don't think people should have to run around trying to find ingredients. But um, but yeah, in terms of it being nutritionally complete, if it's a vegetarian meal, and this is one of the things that really sets this book apart, also from other one pot books, is that as a dietitian, I wanted to make sure each of these recipes are a complete meal that you don't have to make anything else to call this a complete meal, to find it satisfying and, and nutritious in the way you want a meal to be. Of course, many of the recipes could be made more like as a party food. Um, there are like bruschetta toasts with shrimp and white beans, for example, that would be so fun to serve just at a party or part of a larger spread. So it doesn't have to be. Or maybe you could make you know another dish with it or do a soup and salad type of thing, but you don't have to. So everything, if you want to say, this is what I'm making and this is it, everyone's going to be satisfied and it's going to be nutritionally complete. So if it's a vegetarian meal, then I make sure there's enough protein in there um, to call it a full, complete meal. And then if it has meat in it, then I make sure there's lots of vegetables and and whole grains. Some have grains, some don't. Some are just vegetables. Um, and um, I make sure there's enough in there so that it's rich in nutrients and it's rich in fiber and it's rich in all those plant-powered nu- nutritional factors. Gotcha. And you've talked before about flavors. And one thing that I think is so amazing about your recipes, you use flavors in unique ways. When we were, had been talking, you were talking about putting basil and mint on sandwiches, which is such a, I mean, not, not necessarily together, but... 
but just actually it would be delicious um, would, in Thai food yeah. basil and mint are used together a lot yeah um, so actually that would probably be lovely <laughs> <laughs> okay well we invented something but talk about some of the you know surprising ways that you do use things because people don't you know don't necessarily think about putting mint leaves on a sandwich or basil leaves on a sandwich um, you know what are some of the other kind of unique flavoring twists that you like to do yeah so I mean I'm always searching for ways to use I like to say use ordinary ingredients in extraordinary ways and I'm tapping into a lot of traditional cuisines for that sometimes I just feel like I think of it myself but all around me is inspiration for this so I'll give you a couple examples Um, one is that in one of my favorite things to do this time of year when I make roasted vegetables, so in, I like to put, after I roast them, I garnish them with fresh fruit, so fresh fall fruit. So in particular, I'm thinking of a recipe in Hole-in-One where there's, it's sage rub chicken breast, and then there's Brussels sprouts on the sheet pan, and they're roasted until they're crispy on the outside and tender on the inside. And then I garnish the Brussels sprouts with fresh chopped apple. Oh, wow. That sounds Uh, fabulous. Sweet red apple. And it just kind of brings this freshness, but it's still seasonally appropriate. And it it has the depth of flavor of a fall fruit. And um, and it just is perfect. And I do that also with some sunflower seeds. And then I put a little mustard vinaigrette on top. So suddenly you turn this like basic roasted vegetable, which is good, delicious. I mean, I'll eat that anytime. Yeah. But suddenly easily turning into something that has this wow factor and basically that's what I consider my job so yeah it's easy to cook some basic roasted Brussels sprouts anyone's going to think of that but here I'm doing this work of thinking of some way to make it fabulous without a lot of effort oh my gosh I'm 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 Pavlov's dog right now (laughs) <laughs> I can't even tell you. It sounds delicious. Um, how about you did some interesting things also with um, vinegar. I think there was something we were talking, you put balsamic vinegar on some chicken. Just You finished it with it, and it added just a special twist of of yum. Yeah, I think I did. I did a, oh, this is another one. I put um, grapes, just grapes, which is a beautiful fall fruit, also on the sheet pan. There's another sheet pan dinner with chicken. Um, on the sheet pan with... Um, zucchini and then I just take a clusters of grapes and put it on the sheet pan and when you roast those it's, it's barely any effort at all like you just rinse them and put them on the sheet pan and it's um they kind of shrivel a little they get a little brown their flavor concentrates and they're almost get juicier because their juices are kind of activated by the heat yeah and just putting that on the sheet pan is an incredible addition um but in this case I also brought in those grape flavors by putting balsamic vinegar onto the chicken and brushing that on because balsamic vinegar is made with grape must. Yes. And it, um, it adds this lovely tang that wakes things up. I mean, vinegar brightens things and gives it like a wake up. And uh, so that's one of the ways, just acid in general. So vinegars and lemon and lime, I use that a lot to kind of give food another dimension and a brightness. So in that chicken dish, I tie in that grape thing by brushing some balsamic vinegar onto the chicken as well. And it just like glazes in the oven because the sugars, the nat- mm-hmm. inherent sugars in that grape uh, vinegar, the balsamic vinegar kind of caramelize and give the chicken this beautiful, crispy, 
brownness. Yeah. There, sort of an odd question. So balsamics, um, you go to a, a, a fine store, and they have balsamic vinegars. Besides the fact that there's a bazillion of them, the prices range. Some of them are so expensive. Is it worth investing in some of those high-end balsamic vinegars? Yes, and I'll tell you why. So, um, well, first of all, I mean, they can be so expensive that they cost more than gold. Yes. <laughs> so you crazy, don't necessarily right. need to do that. But let's talk about the difference between a kind of salad balsamic vinegar, which is gonna could be a very good quality, but it's generally more acidic and thinner. And that would be good for using with a salad dressing. But when you're looking at an aged balsamic vinegar, it really has a different application. So an aged balsamic vinegar is going to and is going to be more like a syrup, have like a syrupiness to it. But still, it's just being the only ingredient is still just grape must. So it's made of the same thing as um, it's not. Um, it isn't technically a syrup. It's just aged to the point that it's really reducing, and its flavors are getting more nuanced, and it's getting a sweet, tangy balance. Um, and that you don't use in a in a salad dressing, really. You would use that to finish a salad at the end, or to put on a dessert. It's wonderful on cheese. Mm. Um, so it's really used more as a different kind of condiment. It's almost its own condiment. It's almost calling it a vinegar is almost a disservice to it. So. I think you could get a, re- a good one and spend 20 bucks, say, on a bottle. Yeah, good. Now, do you have any other? What's your go-to, like, secret Ellie Krieger, your favorite seasonings or flavorings for chicken or fish or veggies? I mean, you've, you've given me some of these now, but is there, like, the, this is my go-to. I use lime for, for this one or I use balsamic, like, whatever. I'm trying to get your so, secrets out here. I mean, the thing for me is the joy of experimenting and playing. So I do like to, I think, oh gosh, I can't pick one. (laughs) (laughs) But one thing I've been really into lately is making a tahini uh, dressing for things. So you can take like roasted vegetables or even I do this this, um, butternut squash soup and I drizzle some tahini sauce on at the end. So one of the ingredients that I've really been enjoying experimenting with is tahini as a seasoning. So you can do it as a dressing for a grain bowl. Um, It's a lovely drizzled, like I said, on this butternut squash soup. It's lovely drizzled on top of roasted vegetables or grilled vegetables. So so I think people could have fun with tahini. (laughs) Okay. I like tahini. Um, So I have one last question for you, Ellie. What is your favorite... I don't know what to cook, and I don't feel like cooking recipe. So I'm a soup fiend. Yes. <laughs> I really love soup pretty much any time of the year. And, well, I'm going to say two, actually, if I could. So one is soup. So I make this minestrone soup, which is a meal in a pot. <laughs> um, and I basically can make it with, with my hands tied behind my back practically because I know it so well. So that's one of them. Um, it's a minestrone soup. I think it's on my website, actually. Okay. Um, the other one that I just really think is so easy and quick and pleasurable is to just make a quick sheet pan dinner with some salmon, a piece of salmon, um, and then whatever vegetables in season. So it could be green beans, it could be Brussels sprouts, it could be, um, maybe I'll have some potatoes on the pan. 
and I just literally toss everything with olive oil, a little salt and pepper, throw it in the oven, put the fish on for the last 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, sprinkle that with lemon, and dinner is done. And literally there, to me, is nothing really much better or more delicious than a piece of delicious fish with salt, pepper, and lemon juice. And it can be that simple. Sounds perfect. All right, Ellie Krieger, thank you so much. Good luck with the book. The book is Whole in One. You can buy that anywhere, and you can go to elliekrieger.com and learn all about where Ellie is and what she's doing right now. So thank you so much, Ellie. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I'm talking to Ellie Krieger, registered dietitian, award-winning, best-selling author of seven cookbooks, including her latest book entitled Whole in One, Complete Healthy Meals in a Single Pot, Sheet Pan, or Skillet about how to help even the most nervous and time-compressed people to feel comfortable in the kitchen. Research has shown time and again that quality food makes all the difference in our health and wellness. And Ellie's easy-to-make meals are filled with unique tastes and textures that allows food to be good fuel and taste fabulous. Ellie Krieger is just one of thousands of experts featured on our flagship publication, Bottom Line Personal. In addition to Ellie's advice on healthful cooking, Bottom Line Personal is filled with actionable advice about all aspects of your life including financial planning, great gift ideas, navigating the healthcare system, insurance snafus, smart tax strategies, improving your relationships, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.